Thank you for joining another episode of Tech and Main Presents, where we bring you the best insights from today's leaders and experts in technology. Today, we will be speaking with Paul Rupert. Paul, welcome to the Tech and Main Presents podcast. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Oh, you are welcome, Paul. I am going to enjoy the time that we have set aside. Paul, why don't we jump right in by having you share your background with our audience? Okay. Well, Sean, I've been in the telecommunications media and tech segment for a little over 20 years. Throughout my career, I've integrated multidisciplinary skills spanning frontline selling, sales leadership, business development, award-winning product development, strategic partnerships, revenue operations, marketing, as well as long-term merger and acquisition strategies. And I've done that, applied my trade inside startups, scale-ups, as well as global enterprises, yielding some pretty exceptional results. I'm probably most proud of taking what I would call a cockroach startup from scratch to a $500 million liquidity event within five years. And that's in a space back then, a new technology, but it's something that we all utilize today, which is text messaging. Okay. All right. Well, Paul, I appreciate you sharing that. And by the way, I mean, you have a wonderful background. I, I did want to hone in on something that you did previously around security service. It's actually a security service that you brought to market called Messaging Trust. Can you tell mm -hmm. us the story of how that came to be? Sure. At the time, I was the head of product development and owned the commercial P&L for global cloud messaging inside a company called Cineverse Technologies. Cineverse Technologies is one of the largest messaging hubs, as well as a number of other different mobile services solutions and services that's offered primarily to mobile network operators. And as in any good story, and oh, one last thing, Cineverse happens to be owned by the Carlyle Group, which is a well-known private equity firm, one of the largest in the world. And as in any good story, I have to say it started off with two guys sitting in a bar in Tokyo. <laughs> okay. And... <laughs> And myself, it was with a gentleman that uh, has been a very good friend of mine. We used to joke that uh, we were traveling spouses because we traveled all over the world together. His name is Chris White. We started talking about trends in messaging that we had been observing through and across our network. And we were observing what we call the balance of trade and the type of messaging traffic that had been trending towards what's now called enterprise or application to person messaging from the previous historical display, which was person-to-person -person messaging. And this was in the mid-2000s, well, yeah, mid-2010s, around 2010 or so. And we had seen that as the bad guys, as we saw our traffic changing, the bad guys saw the traffic changing as well. They were chasing the money because more enterprise traffic was growing and growing and growing. And as just as a, a point of reference, about that time, there were around 10 trillion messages being sent annually you know, across the globe into the ether all the time. Okay. Today, that's about 15 trillion messages and continues to grow at around 7 to 10%, depending on location, as well as which year. We went through a hyper growth period during the pandemic for all the obvious reasons, new use cases emerging and things of that nature. And for those pandemic years, I think of them as well as some other analysts were estimating that it was around a 20% growth rate. 
So that's kind of the space that we were occupying. And we saw that these threats that the bad guys, as I called them, were increasing. The concern here was that these threats were now borderless. Spam was essentially becoming internationalized. And the alarming concern with that is that it reduces what could be called sovereign legal authority and enforcement. So there are a number of different rules and regulations, laws that exist in the United States, in Europe, in the EU, in individual nations relative to text messaging dynamics, what's fair, what's not, what's legal, what's not, and what's considered spam and, not, and, and unauthorized traffic. But once it becomes internationalized, let's call it the regulations are dodged. There is essentially no enforcer, no pursuit of these bad guys. And we saw an opportunity and thought we could act on it. And so given the technology that we enabled at Cineverse at the time, we saw that traditional tools, which are based on what are called firewalls inside mobile networks as well as computer networks, much of it was based on time volume algorithms. So if somebody was sending out, let's say, 100 messages in a minute, we know that, at least back then, that it was unlikely to be a human being. Since then, we've seen that's not the case. <laughs> because especially, let's not, not to diminish the reality, but because they had such a long, such a significant impact on the development of messaging, teenage girls around the world really shaped the messaging business when it started to take off. That's just reality. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, we thought we had a better way of offering a higher level of security against these ever-growing sophisticated threats. And so, we started engaging potential technology partners that we felt were cutting-edge development of network firewalls and utilizing different types of scenarios and different types of approaches. In our quest, we uncovered an Irish-based startup called Adaptive Mobile, which was led by two former GCHQ veterans. And for those of you who don't know that acronym, GCHQ stands for Government Communications Headquarters. It is essentially the functional equivalent to the National Security Agency in the UK. Oh, okay. Yeah. So these guys had real-life credentials. They had a pedigree is what you're saying, Paul. That's absolutely. And more importantly, they had a very expansive perspective. And they were very much looking for, they were a smaller startup company. And Cineverse at that time, we were doing a little over a billion dollars in revenues. My unit was doing about 130 million in revenues. So we saw that we would be able to offer synergies and opportunities for them. And they would be able to offer technologies that we hadn't been developing on our own for us. And so given our global interconnectivity as one of the leading messaging hubs at the time, we worked with Adapted to develop a number of different initiatives, including one which was called Messaging Fingerprints, which helped to detect new campaigns because these are very much like war in terms of the flood of messaging. And even to understand what Adaptive called the behavioral analytics regarding these cross-border attacks. And candidly, is one of the most inter interesting projects I've had the privilege of working on in integrating the efforts of two companies. And we then took the solution, and this is over a long period of time. I've covered just about six months of effort. We convinced AT&T, which was a strategic partner of Cineverse at the time, to trial the solution. I've heard of that and before. yeah, and so in that first year of service, after we did the trial, which they accepted and put it in place, and we were able to sell to other mobile network operators around the world, 
we did a little over $6 million in revenues, which moves the needle when you're doing $100 million in revenues and for a unit that became significant. Year two turned out to be about $16 million in revenues. And then in that first year that I mentioned earlier, we were recognized by the GSM Association. This was in 2013, a decade ago. Wow. The GSM Association awarded Cineverse and Adaptive the best cybersecurity solution for that year. Oh, that is very cool. Yeah. So it was it was a great, great exercise. There are so many different ways in terms of looking at it from a business case analysis in the context of how many skills were you applying in the partnership, whether it was strategic alliances, whether it was technology partnerships, whether it was countering large versus small, nimble, innovative versus less innovative, less nimble. It was a great experience, and many of the people who are still at Adaptive are still close friends of mine. So, Paul, oh, that is a wonderful, wonderful story. And Paul, I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I think a couple of things that come to mind, one being that great things take partnership, right? You, you mentioned the partnership with Cineverse and Adaptive, and then having a, a third partnership being AT&T, right? And then mm-hmm. having having that having those folks come together and bring to market something that ultimately was very much award-winning. Yeah. And it was I have to say, forgive me for interrupting, it was no, really no, also not at all. quite informative because there were things that we were seeing that we had never seen before and we saw that there were back then now they're called bot armies, but these were essentially handsets that were being fraudulently transformed into the equivalent of a short message service center. This gets really into the technology. Essentially, what it was doing was enabling attacks from across the network against a network. And we also observed where some mobile network, well, one particular mobile network operator was un- was unaware that there were fraudulent initiatives going through their roaming hub and then sent on to other offshore targets without either of the operators knowing what was going on. So we were able to actually observe this and then put it into graphics. And if you're really interested in in what I've just explained, you can actually go on to LinkedIn and under my profile for my time at Cineverse, I still have the presentation that we used in selling the offering once we were able to trial it and get it up and running. So it's, it's a little bit like looking at hieroglyphics in terms of the age, but it's still quite informative today. Oh, and, and that's and that's mm. that's really awesome. I think the other thing that I got from your story is you and and I and I and I want to make sure that people hear the spirit and the intent of what I'm saying. Paul, you were within a company doing great things, right? And I think today we call that being an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. hey, if 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 you have a garage somewhere in San Bernardino and you're building something, keep building it, right? And 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 may you prosper in everything that you put your hand to. But that's not the only way in which great ideas are brought to market. Exactly. Yeah. I ironically I, I think I mentioned to you earlier in our conversation that I was blogging back in two thousand eight and one of the things that kind of hooked my interest was developing innovation and identifying innovation. And I wrote a blog back then titled Innovisioneering, The Hunt for Innovation. So I, I essentially laid out a, a treatise as to how I 
look for innovation. And this was after I had already been in at this stage, that was in 2008. So I got into the business working for a predecessor of AT&T. It was called Pacific Bell Mobile Services, which eventually got acquired by SBC Communications, which then rebranded itself AT&T, so litany there. And I was doing product development for international services at that job in San Francisco and learned a lot by interfacing with the denizens of the valley, if you will, because they were looking to deal flow and they were throwing a number of different initiatives over to the various mobile network operators at the time. And we were low. So I had a a perspective on how to be able to foster and develop innovation both internally as well as externally. That's that's really neat. So, Paul, catch us up on what you're doing today. So, Sean, I run a consulting company now after kind of laddering up through my various executive career, if you will, inside enterprises and growing companies. Pivoted after selling, helping sell a company to another company in the business, and I decided to exit. Um, so I consult back to these same companies that at one point were my competitors or where I worked, as well as ironically to private equity firms. And I've been involved in a number of different engagements with PE firms, examining, doing commercial due diligence on opportunities, but also being able to put forth strategies that would be able to leverage telecommunications as well as towards the what's now being called platforms or layered communications, which is essentially the integration of SMS, voice, video, over-the-top messaging, in-app push messaging, email, and chatbots. And most recently, I started looking at quantum computing and how quantum computing can be applied to the telecommunication segment. That's a little bit leading edge, a little bit over the horizon, well over the horizon, but nonetheless caught my interest. And if you don't mind me asking, Paul, to what to what degree has or what to what degree have you been digging into quantum computing? Are, are you trying to tie it back to some of the the like, absolutely? No, we've already identified about six different arenas. When I say we, I've had started conversations with a potential client that is in the quantum computing world, uh, specifically looking at providing services to the IC, which is another acronym meaning the intelligence community, because you can start processing the analysis very quickly of huge, huge amounts of data, which is what they do on a day-to-day basis. I love the the terminology now is essentially the, the architecture of computers that we're so accustomed to that we've all grown up with and predate us is all about off and on switches, if you will. But quantum computing essentially magnifies the power and the capability of these, quote, classical computers, unquote. (laughs) And as I say, the, the breadth, depth, and power of the processing is what's garnering so much attention. And if you look at, as I just mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the amounts of messages that get thrown up into the air, I always, in many times where I make public speeches and things like that, I throw this out. How many economic units are you aware of that are measured in the teens of trillions on an annualized basis globally? It's kind of tough to be able to start focusing into that level. Well, it's pretty easy because we're all creating it daily, which is text messages, SMS. Oh, and by the way, what did one SMS say to the other? I don't know, Paul. What did one SMS say to the other? (laughs) 
let's text this out. <laughs> Had to throw that in there. Yeah, you did, of course. <laughs> it, it'll come back to one of the questions I think you'll ask me at the end that you already seated with me. But That's some good SMS humor, man. I like it. I like it. All right, so, so Paul, we're, we're, we're talking about quantum computing and how it ties into some of what you're doing currently. That's got me thinking, right? I mean, there's there's young people out there. They're looking at a career in technology. Paul Rupert, give them some advice, sir. Well, on this one, I am not an electrical engineer. I am not a computer scientist. I have an undergraduate liberal arts degree in political science. I also happen to have two patents in the SMS interoperability world. And yet, I also happen to have a graduate degree from Harvard in public administration. Now, can you draw a line of sight or a direct line between an MPA from the Kennedy School and my career in telecommunications, media, and technology? No, you can't. The, the point there is for me, I believe that you have to have a range of skills that oftentimes, I know everyone talks about Malcolm Gladwell's, if you do something 10,000 times, yeah, the uh, repeated exactly that you become an expert. But the reality is the reality of life is that you don't get such set piece challenges where it's just like, okay, here it is. It's nice, nice and safe environment to be able to solve a problem. Because in reality, you're usually trying to solve problems that are interdependent, interconnected, interrelated. And you've got to have a thought process. Daniel Pink talks about it in a book where he talks about the objective is to be able to create and conduct a symphony of activity, which means you have to have combinatorial thinking, meaning you are looking at these problems. Another big word I'll throw out here is analogical thinking. This is Pink's word, not mine. Analogical thinking, which is you are looking at a problem and you are creating an analogy or metaphor from another scenario that you may have seen that it might be completely different. So it's like, what's the relationship with apples and aardvarks? Well, there is a relationship between apples and aardvarks, but you got to be able to have an understanding of what their relationship might be. They both begin with A is the obvious. So that's kind of how I look at this. Now, you can start off in the technology aspects. I've tried to broaden my range of skills because of the experiences that I've had. And it's not always engineering because I'll give you another direct experience. When I was when I joined Pacific Bell Mobile Services, I came in doing business development and I was part of the product team because this was a brand new company. It was indeed a startup. It was an exceptional startup because we had already spent $3 billion for the spectrum that we were going to be utilizing, but indeed it was still a startup. And at that time, this was a greenfield opportunity in terms of mobile services. What we so take advantage of now uh, in terms of mobile handsets and smartphones and the old feature phones didn't exist then. So trying to staff out a company that had a $3 billion investment for Spectrum, and yet where were you going to find people? So they went off to the UK and other places that GSM technology had already existed, but mostly they hired people from non-related fields. So I worked for a guy who was from Sega, which is the gaming company. Our mutual boss had come from Gillette. Okay. And here I was, was essentially, believe it or not, I was putting together 
a rental retail program where we were establishing airport kiosks in the major international airports. Because when you got off a plane, let's say from the UK, and you had a, a GSM-based mobile phone, that phone didn't work in California and vice versa. And it wasn't, they were both GSM, but they didn't work because they hadn't interoperated. They hadn't developed the interoperability between the two at that stage. So I put together this program and then we got acquired and then Motorola and others were able to put together a solution that technologically, you, we didn't need that business anymore. And once we got acquired, as I said, about when the month nine in my tenure, I came into a meeting and I thought that I was going to get essentially rift. I was going to get a, pocket, a package because we had just been acquired by Southwestern Bell Corporation. And instead, I was offered an opportunity to become a product development director. And I was very honest in the meeting. I was like, look, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a full grasp of how this all works. I fully understand the serviceability and the convenience that we offer, which is what I try to sell when I'm dealing with United Airlines or the Beverly Hills Hilton or whoever it was that we were engaging with. And I, I remember this to this day, the uh, the hiring authority, the guy who was putting the new team together, he said, no, I don't want engineers because they tend to get swooned by the technology. I want guys to be able to make business decisions and who can kill their children. Literally what he said. And it took me a moment to me to understand what he meant, which was when you're doing product development, you can't be married to one solution. No, You've got to have flexibility and back to, I can articulate that now, but in 2000, in, excuse me, 1998, when all this was going on, I didn't have that vernacular, that vocabulary to go, yeah, I understand it completely. So I would say be very wide in your experience base and utilize it in a number of different ways. Just don't focus on one thing. Paul, I think that is excellent advice for the young folks out there of any age. That, that is a wonderful sample of really being flexible, right? Being resourceful and and not allowing your background to predetermine. Because with your your degree from Harvard, someone would say, well, why didn't you take your talents to DC, right? Well, the truth is I had taken my talents to DC before I went to grad school. <laughs> and then in grad school, I had the epiphany of one of the benefits of a place like Harvard is that as a graduate student, you can take coursework. All you have to do is convince the professor at any graduate level institution inside Harvard, whether it's the divinity school, the medical school, the law school, or the business school. And I, I discovered the business school my first week at school, and I was like, I made a mistake. And I, I realized it wasn't like I was going to be able to parachute into Harvard Business School. But I recognize that I should have been going to business school, had a conversation with my, my academic advisor, and he's like, don't worry, you're not the first. Here's what we do. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was my, my experience. So yeah, I pivoted. I recognized that I wanted to do something different. Yeah. And, and, and it is okay to pivot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So no, that's, that's wonderful advice. And I appreciate you sharing that. All right. So Paul, let's take a look at getting to know you a little better. First question for you in that regard will be, name your favorite musician or band. That's pretty easy, the Beatles. Okay. All right. And which Beatles album is your favorite? Oh, wow. Yeah. I was coming for you. I didn't know that one. I wasn't expecting that. 
Probably Sergeant Peppers. Yes. Yeah. 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 I am the walrus. All that stuff that was going on back then. Right. It's so it's funny. Going back to a book that you mentioned just a moment ago, the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outlier, mm -hmm. the, the Ten Thousand Hours of Practice. People think, oh, the the Beatles, amazing, they're wonderful, legendary. But there, there's also some practicality to that genius, right? From 1961 to 1963, they went over to Hamburg, Germany, mm -hmm. and played in bars. The Quarrymen. Yes. Yes. They played <laughs> bars and pubs. That's right. Like, like six to eight hours straight. Yeah. Sometimes weeks at a time. Right. And so by the time they started what we know now as the British invasion, yeah. Oh, they they had thousands of hours yeah. of practice. And the reality, these were just guys who were teenagers. They were 16, 17, eight years old, 18 years old. How many how many parents would say, sure, you can go off to Hamburg and play in a band inside a, a subterranean bar? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So, but no, that's, but that's, yeah, that's, that's what, one of the things that sets the Beatles apart. Yeah. Literally everyone else. So. Yeah. And even to, to, not that I'm, I'm quoting books here and there, but the reality is that there's a book called Range by a guy named David Epstein, who talks not specifically about the Beatles, but the reality of that musicians that play multiple instruments, they don't have to play them really well. But they play multiple instruments and they do better across all of them because they play multiple instruments as opposed to someone who just is, let's say, a piano player or a cello player or whatever. No, that's that's and it's it's funny because two two of my favorite artists, Rick James and There we go. If you I mean, obviously their music catalog people are very familiar with. What some people may not be as familiar with is that range that you just talked about, right? Prince played six, seven different instruments. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, same thing with Rick James. He played multiple instruments as well. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. Having that range allows you to do better overall. Yeah. So if you, if you like Prince and Rick James, you probably have heard of the story of Eddie Murphy being stuck at Rick James' house for like two weeks in a snowstorm. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think Dave Chappelle did a skit. Oh, did he? Oh, really? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Cause there, obviously, time, time does not allow for us to. Oh, get into, into it. No the, kidding. Know, <laughs> yeah. It's into the, into the wild escapades. Of, right. Exactly. Of but it's, but it's just, that was an interesting, interesting time. Oh, and I'm, I'm a child of the 80s. So, I mean, those were my formative years. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm a child of the 70s, so I guess I'm the the old guy here. Right. <laughs> not by much. Well, probably yeah. not by much. But I, I, I digress. Yeah, yeah. Great, great music choices. Yeah, Beatles, all-time band, for sure. How about a favorite hobby or pastime? This one's pretty broad. Anything that's movement-related activity. I've been a Certified professional ski instructor for about 25 years, and I've done everything from Zumba classes for workouts to traditional weightlifting to most recently, I started playing pickleball and just was in a tournament last weekend. So anything that I can challenge myself, I, I'm not competitive in the sense that 
uh, I'm competing against someone else. It's all about, all right, let's try this. Let's do this. Can you get better? Work at it, et cetera. You are, you are the second person in a row that's talked about playing pickleball. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. There's a, there we go. a guy down in Miami, Sagi Brody of Octi9. Interviewed him for the podcast last week. So his episode isn't out yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I asked him what one of his favorite hobbies is. And he's recently very much gotten into pickleball. Give it a shot. You'll find it's it's quite there it's multidimensional in the things the great the level of satisfaction and gratification you can get out of it it's athletic it's movement related it's quick but it's also strategic it's also highly social because you the confining is you're in i think it's a 20 foot uh, box okay and the first 7 feet you can't really get into without getting into too much about the rules so there's a there's a lot of stuff that's going on and most of the activity it's also mixed doubles so that's how I say it's it's a very social game and it's not just a power game. So if you have like four guys who you all tennis players are all trying to crush the ball, but then you mix it up and it becomes much more strategic. So check it out. Okay. I will have to do that, Paul. I will definitely have to do that. What about a favorite place to visit on vacation? I've had the chance to go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming twice. And I'd probably, if I could do that easily from Washington, D.C., I'd go more often, but and I was there in the summertime when you can hike, play golf, ride horses, whitewater raft. In the wintertime, obviously, you can ski, cross-country ski, snowshoe, etc. So that's, as I say, I've done that twice and I'd probably, I'd love to be able to do it again, but I haven't done anything lately to manifest that. Okay. Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Good choice. Good choice. What teacher, Paul, at any level has had the greatest impact on well, I was a classic jock in high school, so I'd have to say a coach. I played soccer, and my soccer coach was also a track coach. And it wasn't one of those things where, ironically, the soccer coach had actually played football through college. And as a freshman and a sophomore, he didn't, he didn't raise me up. He put me as a freshman on the JV team, but all my friends were getting raised up to the varsity team as a freshman and a sophomore, which really pissed me off. But I spent a summer literally just practicing on loan because I was too young for a college, for a, a summer job at the time. You have to be 16 years old. And so every day for about two hours, I'd go off and practice on a field alone with a soccer ball and cleats. And then I rose as a junior and he immediately put me into a starting position on the team. And then as a, as a senior, I became captain of the soccer team. Oh, wow. So, in terms of impact, it wasn't like a buddy-buddy relationship. It was, at first, I was like, I don't think he saw the talent. I didn't have the athleticism as a freshman or a sophomore, while some of my friends did. So, that's probably had the biggest, biggest impact. I mean, one of the things that I've even told my own son many times, this is, the guy's name is Pat Gillespie in Rocky River, Ohio. Rocky River, Ohio. So, Pat, if you're out there listening... Nice to see you again, coach, or here again. He would also always say the power of the wolf is in the pack and the power of the pack is in the wolf, which is very self-evident as to where you extract power and strength from. The group, the community, the individual, the individual contributing to the group, the community, the community of essentially extending security and power to the individual. It was one of those things that has stuck with me all my life. Oh, that's awesome. 
knows? And 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 little did Coach realize what he was doing. Well, yeah. Well, I think he did. <laughs> he molded a number of different. Uh, I wasn't an All American or anything like that, but there were a number of different guys that I played with that were really phenomenal athletes. So, yeah. Well, I. I mean, the the capstone to everything being captain of varsity your senior year. You you put the work in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you showed up. Awesome. You showed up exactly. Yeah. All right. Did the work. And, and that's and that's the most important thing. And yeah, that and that's such a common shared experience, at least for American men. And and outside of of the U.S., the same type of experience is manifested in when they start playing football, i.e., soccer or rugby, et cetera, et cetera. It's 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 all part of how we think as human beings and how we operate as hunter gatherers at times. So as well as farmers. Back in the day, the original gangsters. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At agrarian society, it that's it, right. It, it brings it out. It brings it out. All right. So, Paul, we've we've come to the end of our time, but before we go, we are going to jump in the time machine and we are going to go back to eighteen-year-old Paul Rupert. What is the Paul of today going to tell his eighteen-year-old self? Probably loosen up. <laughs> In the sense that I tend to commit to things that I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And once committed, that can be, I can be pretty intense and was pretty intense back then. Now I've kind of softened, but that's, that intensity is still an inner self driver, if you will, a flame that keeps me going. Okay. Well, Paul, look, that is wonderful advice and And to say that I've enjoyed this would be an understatement. Paul, you do a good interview. So, (laughs) Well, thank you, Sean. (laughs) It was a lot of fun, I have to say. I I very much appreciate that. It's very gracious of you. Oh, look, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your background and all of the wonderful things that you did with our audience. But before we let you go, Paul, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? So you can go to my LinkedIn profile. I'm listed as Paul R. Rupert. You can also find me on my website, which is www.gpvltd.com. And you can find me that way. You can get me in terms of email at prupert, R-U-P-P-E-R-T, at gpvltd.com. Okay, awesome. And of course, we'll be sure, excuse me, we will be sure to put that in the show notes. But again, Paul, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Sean. It was a delight having a conversation with you. Very much enjoyed it as well. Awesome. And with that, Techamane Presents family, thank you as always for listening. And be sure to tune in next time when we will have another technology expert share their wisdom. Goodbye for now.